I think it's been predictable for a long time. If we wanted to look at sort of a historical perspective, we could say that this decline started in the 1960s when uh, positive U.S. power reached a peak at home and abroad, but with uh, declines becoming very apparent in the 1970s and accelerating in various ways in the decades that followed. Recently, the crisis that I see has to do with politics and has to do with the political system. We're in a situation where we need to have uh, public safety, we need to do something on gun control, we need to do something on climate change, we need to do something on education, we need to do something on the affordable and available medical system, and uh, many other things, but because of this imbalance or this sort of seesawing back and forth among uh, the left and right, in effect, nothing gets done. Redistribution is more unequal in the U.S. I wonder if it's because it's a country of immigrants from all different countries and the higher income groups actually have more power to exploit immigrants from other places. That's caused the pre-distribution inequality. The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Welcome to the Chat Lounge. I'm Tu Yun. Joining our discussion on whether the United States is becoming a developing country are Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations of East China Normal University. David Moser, Associate Professor of Beijing Capital Normal University, and Wang Xianghong, Professor and Director of Economic Behavior Laboratory, Renmin University of China here in Beijing. Nice to have you all on the show. So the United States has slipped on a global development index, and the United Nations Sustainable Development Report places the U.S. at 41st this year down from 32nd a year ago. The U.S. ranks between Cuba, 40th, and Bulgaria, 42nd. Because both countries are widely regarded as developing countries, some American observers say the U.S. is now becoming a developing country. So let me start with um, Shen Hong. I understand you got your doctoral degree in the States. So what's your first response to such a conclusion? Uh, when I first uh, see this uh, conclusion, my first uh, response is curiosity, I guess. I was thinking, what made it the U.S. rank so low? Mm. Uh, I do have the feeling that uh, the U.S. is not as developed uh, as before. That's my personal impression, but uh, I didn't expect it to be as low as uh, Cuba and Bulgaria. So that, that's my first response. Right. You're saying you don't think the U.S. is as developed as before. What prompted that impression? I guess because uh, personal experience and uh, media exposure. Can you give us some, your, also, some of your uh, personal experience? Also, I think also because of the growth of uh, other economies. Comparatively, U.S. does not look as so far developed as what kind thought. of what kind of personal experience uh, led you to that conclusion i lived the, in the us for some years and i came to teach at the university in 2006 and at that time as a consumer 
I felt so spoiled. I think uh, America is a heaven for consumers. And uh, in China, as a consumer, I did not have as a good experience. I feel big difference between Mm. the two markets. But as we developed in China, when I traveled back and forth in the past 10 years or so, I had some much better experience in China and some less good, I mean, normal experience in U.S., not as so different from as a consumer from other countries. And, and uh, I also, from media, I see too many violent events. That is uh, two things uh, that uh, give me the impression. Right. And Joseph, um, I understand you, the last time you went back to the States uh, is in December. Do you think uh, um, Shanghong's got some, you know, illusion or what's your response? You know, I think clearly the U.S. has declined in many respects. And and in fact, this is not a new trend. Uh, It goes back, uh, I think, to the 1970s, at least, if if we examined it in terms of uh, real wages, security, access to health care and quality education and so Mm. on. Uh, you know, recently we've seen a, a significant decline in life expectancy. We've seen infant mortality rates in the U.S. exceeding those in Cuba for, for many years. Uh, we've seen social, political, economic, and environmental crises intersecting and compounding uh, noticeably since the early 2000s. We've seen regions transformed from progressive to deeply conservative, religious, and intolerant. We've seen religion outcompeting science education and public school curriculums through official policymaking in the past couple of years. Uh, we've seen spikes in suicides, murder, sexual abuse, along with uh, racist attacks. Uh, we've seen national health care crises, including problems associated with basic access, and these intersecting with prescription uh, drug epidemics fed by a corrupt pharmaceutical industry, uh, the well-known opioid crisis, plus uh, the legalization of marijuana in many states, along with uh, significant increases in drug and alcohol abuse, including uh, drug overdose deaths that uh, spiked in the last couple of years. Uh, We've seen cities collapse, most famously Detroit. We've seen a growing uh, national crisis and infrastructure decay and a very limited political will or ability to address these problems effectively. So without a doubt, uh, the U.S. is in a period of struggle and in Mm -hmm. many respects. uh, The various indicators we normally use to indicate it being a developed country are are, are now placing it and and more of a developing uh, category. However, um, you know, these categories, uh, developing and uh, and developed, have always been a bit problematic. Uh, For example, it's always been the case that the U.S. was still a developing country in some places. Uh, I grew up in the American South, and I've spent a lot of time in undeveloped and deeply backward places like Appalachia and rural Alabama. At the same time, I've spent a lot of uh, a lot of time in places like Shanghai, Shenzhen, and Beijing, and we can't say that uh, these cities in China are developing places. Uh, they're some of the most developed cities in the world, and and arguably the most developed in terms of tech, governance, infrastructure, and so on, as I think has been demonstrated by their capacity to to control the pandemic. But you know, I was also recently in rural Hunan in a, in a, in a minority prefecture, uh, and in some respects, it's more advanced than anything you'd find and the least developed, part, least developed parts of the U.S., but in other respects, it's clearly got a lot of work to do. What kind of some, aspects? Uh, development aspirations. Say again? You're, you're talking about your experience in Hunan. Um, what, what kind of aspects do you think it's um, you know, better developed? I was in Jishou, and I was in the, the minority prefecture around Jishou. There's no city that I can think of in Appalachia that is, that is as developed as Jishou, but of course you get 
15, 20 kilometers out of Jisho and you're in very rural farmland, but they're also advancing uh, high-tech infrastructure in those areas, again, unlike what we would see in, in Appalachia mm. or even parts of uh, uh, rural Alabama. But, you know, this brings up a deeper point. Uh, the idea that a country is developed uh, versus developing has some usefulness as a rubric, but it, it's also too easily and mistakenly coincides with this, you know, Western end of history way of thinking. And contrarily, I think we should instead see development as a perpetual activity. We're always aiming to improve ourselves, to hold the gains we've won and build on them, whether through new innovations, reforms, or revolution. And in this sense, none of us are ever fully developed. We're always at best developing or at worst uh, going backwards. Mm, but uh, some people say that you, you can obviously undevelop yourself after being developed. Yeah, no, I think I think the U.S. is going backwards now. I, my worst example is is in my home state of Tennessee, and and um, uh, this school that my son was attending, where uh, they you know they passed this law in the state of Tennessee that you now have to teach the Genesis account of creation mm. in science class along with the Big Bang theory. And it's just, it's absolutely ludicrous that we're now teaching religion and science class. Yeah. Mm. You know, it, it just parallel with like all this backward thinking that was part and parcel of U.S. being unable to respond uh, effectively and scientifically to the outbreak. Mm, you don't know. Maybe they can find some new findings um, when, you know, integrate these two together. But uh, we'll talk about uh, what causes these, um, you know, changes later in the show. Um, David, your take? Well, I think Joseph laid out some really good, uh, most salient examples of what's happening in the U.S. right now with failing. I think the there is a problem with terms like developing country. Mm. Usually developing country uh, has to do with things like GDP and economic growth, uh, right. among other things. China, for a long time, preferred to call itself a developing country rather than a developed country for various reasons. But uh, I think in the United States, in terms of economics and per capita GDP as well as gross GDP can't really be qualified as, as a developing country. It's, it's yeah. still one of the most developed countries on earth in mm. that sense. And in many other senses, as Joseph pointed out, in terms of the the upward mobility that it can provide to the class and the lower class and other aspects, it's, it's actually behaving more like a undeveloped country. Mm. Uh, I think the Recently, the crisis that I see has to do with politics and has to do with the political system. One of the features of or the bugs of developing countries is that they tend to have an unstable political situation with different factions that take power and uh, that there's a, not a smooth transition of power from one administration to another. That's sort of what we think of when we think of the banana republics, as they call them, and developing countries that don't have a stable political system and a stable negotiation between political factions. And it seems like we've had that. We've been growing toward that problem for a long time. And President Trump only exacerbated that, even to the point of single-handedly, almost in one administrative session in four years, basically has broken our voting system, our electoral system. So that there's a, a almost complete lack of faith in the validity of the elections and the uh, transition of power among both parties and people of both political uh, orientations in the country, mostly among the right wing, but then also on the on the left wing. And uh, this in turn could be very dangerous because it is very dangerous because this polarization and the lack of ability for the two factions, political factions to collaborate and cooperate means that nothing gets done. And so... We're in a situation where we need to have uh, public safety, 
we need to do something on gun control. We need to do something on climate change. We need to do something on education. We need to do something on the affordable and available medical system and uh, many other things. But because of this imbalance or this sort of seesawing back and forth among uh, the left and right, in effect, nothing gets done. And we have presidents who come into office and immediately issue a bunch of executive orders because they can't get any cooperation or collaboration with the Congress, with the Senate and the House. And then a new president comes in and the first thing they do is to just cancel and revoke the uh, previous executive orders and then make their own executive orders. Mm. This is not how democracy is supposed to work. It's not the way our democracy it was designed to work. But the, 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 the system is there, you know, since uh, I think uh, since the founding day of the United States. But do you think it's just because of the, you know, party politics that has led to all of these? Uh, that's a complex question. It, it, it's partly due to that. Frankly, it's partly due to our one of the core values and, and advantages of our system, which was this open uh, media and its uh, freedom of press and freedom of speech. A lot of the damage that's been done politically in the last, I'd say, 10, 20, maybe 30 years has had to do with the rise of the new media, the polarized media, where you have left and right media after the, they changed the doctrines in the 60s, where politics had to be more or less equal, equally representative in the media. And now, of course, we have, we have social media. So now there's a vast amount of misinformation, false information, fake information, and polarized, dangerous, politicized and polarized information that's tearing us apart. And so I think there are many, many things you could point to. And I'm sure that Joseph has others he can mention, but uh, there, there are many reasons why our political system and our system of elections has been damaged. People have written books about that. So anyway, that's my take on it. Yeah, both you and Joseph uh, mentioned a lot of aspects that um, uh, the U.S. society has been uh, deteriorating in. But uh, when we look at the 17, you know, categories or 17 sustainable development goals used of this um, ranking, which factor or which factors would you say have contributed most, um, you know, to the U.S. decline in the ranking? Joseph? To be honest with you, uh, you know, every rubric has its strengths and weaknesses. And inevitably trying to compare countries in such a way has all sorts of theoretical and methodological uh, shortcomings. Mm. I think the question, you know, about sustainability is the key question, given the mounting problems that we're facing, uh, above all, the, the fact that we're not yet dealing effectively with climate change. And, and especially in the United States, where we still have the highest per capita emissions in the world, uh, we seem to think that we can, you know, continue to consume at a certain rate and that we will, you know, be able to sustain our economic growth, our economic model using this whole logic if we just, you know, add a little bit more green sensibility. And so far, that's not working out very well. But in my estimation, I think we should also look at other indicators. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, the extent to which uh, a society has become technological uh, for better or worse. And, you know, for example, um, by some accounts, the leading tech independent countries of the world, and a friend of mine at Bond University just completed this empirical study, the leading countries right now are U.S., uh, South Korea, China, and Russia. Um, and these four countries have, I think, more independent foreign policies than other countries in the world right now because other countries are tech dependent on others. But that said, uh, by my own estimation, and this is something I argued in a recent publication, uh, China uh, by, by many measures, is is arguably the most advanced uh, technological society in the world today. And we can see this 
with the proliferation of high tech, green tech, and new tech development, but also how these advances have been embraced and used by people in health and education, commerce, governance, and so on. And above all, we can see this demonstrated with China's zero COVID policies, which have controlled the outbreak better than any others. So if I'm looking at development through this lens, in other words, how the people in their government think and solve problems with technology, then I might say China is the most developed in the world. And I, I know this sounds strange to some, but it's quite clear when we look at technology as a functional social development and not just whether you have the most advanced quantum computer or space programs and so on. And another point here is, you know, China currently has more than 400 million middle income earners, uh, more than the entire U.S. population and has eliminated extreme poverty. So by this kind of measure, we might say that China has within it a developed country that is bigger than the U.S. and perhaps all others as well. So uh, it's difficult to say when we look at um, uh, where China ranks in terms of these other countries, clearly it has some of the most developed aspects in the world. Uh, and it still has uh, aspects that that need to that need further work, and, and which the government acknowledges and and moves towards. Mm, maybe these two factors, uh, technology and um, poverty eradication, uh, Joseph just mentioned, have helped China, you know, move one spot upward on this uh, ranking. But I'm not quite sure if it's the factor that um, led to or dragged the U.S. down the the listing. So, Xiang Hong, what's your take here? I would like to give an example about the usage of technology mm. in China, because uh, my focus in academic research is behavioral economics. And recently, we are being given some funding for infrastructure for research or teaching. And uh, I just discussed uh, last night with a colleague in another university. We are thinking about uh, buying a robot, maybe to study the implication of uh, having robots to serve you in daily life, or how human-computer interaction affects uh, human behavior, etc. And uh, the reason uh, we got to think about this is uh, in daily life, we are seeing so much usage of uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, in daily life in organizations. For example, in my school, in university, there is a teacher's buffet. We don't need to pay by cash or bring a card. We can just go through the entrance with face recognition. And this was something I imagined I was taught as a story at Carnegie Mellon University a long time ago. Now we see this everywhere. So. I'm quite happy that we are using all this high tech. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Welcome back. You're listening to The Chat Lounge. Let's focus our attention on the states. We are talking about if the United States is becoming a developing country. David, I'm not quite sure if you are familiar with the 17, you know, uh, sustainable development goals uh, listed by this um, institute um, when they, you know, rank the 100 plus uh, countries around the world. But which one would you say is um, the most um, crucial factor that has led to, you know, the, the U.S. decline on, on the ranking? Uh, well, June, maybe we could do a little... Uh 
something of benefit to the listeners, I, I, I will just list them quickly because sure. list them. Uh, no poverty, mm. zero hunger, good health and well-being, quality education, gender equality, clean water and sanitation, affordable and clean energy, decent work and economic growth, clean water and sanitation, affordable and clean energy, decent work and economic growth, industry innovation and infrastructure, reduced inequality, sustainable cities and communities, climate action, peace, justice, and strong institutions, and partnerships. So um, notice that these are all goals, national goals, goals that have to be uh, right. carried out ideally by the government action and government administration and not the market. Oh, thanks for doing my work. Uh, yeah. I wonder I wonder in their ranking what are the weights they put in each of these uh, 17 indicators. I don't think there are any weights. These are just aspirational goals. The listing is not according to weight as far as I know. And different countries might put some goals higher than others. Yeah. The measurement is whether they made any progress in these 17 aspects. So David, well, okay. uh, but so my opinion on these issues, mm. first of all, these are all very valid issues, and they're they're set they're drawn up by the United Nations. So, I mean, these are cross country evaluations or cross country priorities. But first of all, uh, most of these evolve must involve sustainable policy, governmental mm. policy, and sustainable industrial policy. The U.S. almost has no such thing as a su sustainable or a ongoing industrial policy. And so, therefore, the U.S. makes the mistake, I think, of assuming that the best way to to assure these sort of functions of of the country and of governance is just to leave it to the free market. Now, there are a lot of things that can help in the free market. I mean, it's good to have Tesla and people compete, competing for, you know, electric cars, clean energy and so forth. But, I mean, you can't just uh, have a government that, that leaves it open to the free market and just plays a referee. You've got to have some kind of policy that goes from administration to administration. Mm. And for something like, for example, just take any any example. Let's say the healthcare system, right? One of the things the U.S. lacks, and it's a, it's a great drain on pr productivity and also to for upward mobility, mm. is the health system, which is too expensive. We pay more for healthcare than any other developed country, any other Western country, and we don't have anything like universal healthcare that other countries have. And yet, we've been fighting about this from different administrations uh, for decades, going as far back as Clinton, and finally was somewhat resolved by Obama, but in a very a sort of weak and ineffectual way because of the partisan arguments back and forth about what healthcare should be. And so right now we have, after all this political struggle, we have a healthcare system that's still not not very good. It hasn't created uh, better infant mortality rates or, or longer life expectations. And here we are, the most developed country economically on earth, and our healthcare system is woefully behind many, many other countries. So I just use that as an example of where we fall behind in a very mm -hmm. crucial of the economy because of the of the fall of the devolution of the political system, which has created. Just stasis and paralysis for the last 20 or 30 years, and it's only getting worse. So are you saying that uh, the experts at the United Nations, they just picked some uh, criteria or some aspects that the U.S. is not good at or not ha have no, oh, no strength in? Or 
No, these have nothing to do with the U.S. particularly. These are these are standards generally agreed upon or criteria and standards for any country, for any viable uh, you know country. And they just noted that in terms of then they ranked various countries according to how they perform in these seventeen areas. That's right. all it is. So according to report, the lower of ranking the in the U.S. is mainly on income inequality and、uh, violence. And protection of、uh, labor workers.、Mm. And I, I remember、uh, Joseph just said this is a very long process. So does that mean it's unavoidable that the U.S. must be sliding or you know going down? It's actually predictable, Joseph. I think it's been predictable for a long time. If, if we wanted to look at sort of a historical perspective, we could say that this decline started. In the 1960s, and you know, a lot of people would would find that odd because you seem to have these these sort of strange positive memories associated with the 1980s or or the U.S. winning the Cold War in the 1990s. But、mm-hmm. I I would argue it started in the late 60s when、uh, positive U.S. power reached uh, uh, a peak at home and abroad. But with、uh, declines becoming very apparent in the 1970s and accelerating in various ways in the decades that followed,、uh, this is to say the, de- the declines started sometime shortly after the major civil rights legislation of the mid 1960s and the Great Society programs of、uh, the Johnson administration, but which also, you know, those positive steps forward also coincided with American imperialism in Vietnam and other parts of the world. And then saw the 1960s、uh, closing with the assassinations of、uh, relative、uh, American progressives like Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy, neither of whom were radicals, by the way, but moderates, all things considered. In the 1970s, we saw the growing resistance of some countries、uh, who were capable of mounting it. Resistance to the U.S., most notably the OPEC countries, that、uh, demonstrated the limits of American power, and likewise the vulnerability of the U.S. economy to shocks. Followed by the Islamic Revolution and the seizure of the U.S. embassy in, in Tehran, and along that same time, the instrumental enlargements of what would later formally become the European Union in 1992, we saw the American responses to these challenges in the 1980s with、mm. uh, deregulation and labor suppression, which starts this long dark cycle that's been documented in、uh, Thomas Piketty's work. Of greater income inequality, decline in real wages, along with successive financial crises,、uh, we likewise saw a massive and unsustainable increase in deficit spending,、uh, growing currency manipulation by the U.S. Federal Reserve with global effects, and increased、uh, military adventurism and costs overseas. In the 1990s, with the collapse of the USSR, the U.S. really started to believe its own propaganda and <laughs> pursued what some have famously derided as, in, as imperial hubris.、Uh, this saw the U.S. waging、uh, war increasingly in Islamic countries, but likewise expanding NATO onto Russia's borders, then escalating with the war on terror and invasions and 20-year occupations of Afghanistan and Iraq, and a multitude of other attacks on sovereign nations, which cost the U.S. trillions of dollars. Uh, which coincided with fostering regime change, assassinations, and other you know various crimes <laughs> against humanity.、Uh, you know, in the meantime,、uh, we had events like the U.S. instigated global financial crisis in 2008, along with、uh, uh, what David was mentioning, the growing American healthcare crises, the hollowing out of the American working class and manufacturing base, and these developments and others, you know, eroding the middle class, <clears throat> creating more poverty and problems. Anyway, I've provided enough of a historical account here, and、yeah. I'm sure everyone who's followed this. Has a clear idea, you know, how 
these events have led into recent history. But this is to say that, yes, this has been a long time coming and, and a lot of people have seen it coming for a long time. But, you know, there's been sort of this this ostrich effect where people have kind of buried their heads in the sand and, and pretended like that it wasn't really getting worse or if we just changed the administration from Democratic to Republican or vice versa, that this would, you know, once and for all solve the problem. Um, it, it seems to me that uh, uh, David tends to attribute all these uh, to, you know, party politics or partisan argument, um, as he mentioned. But um, Joseph, you're, you're talking about American hubris. Do you think such kind of hubris has played a big role in this process where the uh, United States has gone to, to this um, status? Well, what well would I you... think so. I think, you know, this issue, and I don't, I don't know if you want to uh, talk about it here, the issue of American exceptionalism, which is at the root of, um, of this hubris in certain respects. And of course, the hubris really accelerates with the end of the Cold War and, and, and the supposed American victory. But, you know, when we look again at this hubris from a, from a broad perspective, there's long been this, this national idea, this idea that in some way the United States was um, metaphysically predestined to some sort of greatness, one country under God, something along these lines. And people never really wanting to acknowledge the fact that American greatness was due to certain advantages that were based in a, a particular moment in time. And, and these, these advantages included, you know, the arrival of people of, of, of an advanced uh, technological position with, with the invasion of, of uh, the, the European settlers and the, the genocide and dispossession of this land from the Native Americans and then the exploitation of African slaves and then the dispropriation and, and suppression of Latin uh, people, a big part of the, the southwestern part of the United States coming into the fold in this way. And to some extent, you know, this, these modes of suppression and oppression have continued and, and we see them today in terms of the racism and the, and the, the high rates of poverty in these specific uh, ethnic groups, Native Americans, uh, African Americans and, and Latinx. Um, but, you know, people, people began to believe that there was something magical about the American system itself, something that uh, made it, you know, the transhistorical, you know, universal solution to the, the bigger questions of how best to organize your economy and your political system. And there were certainly advantages and, and, and benefits to, to the U.S. system, and it did create some justice along the way. But we've also seen that uh, it has not aged well especially when we try to deal with uh, entrenched problems and make way for other countries in the world uh, in, in a more equitable fashion. Mm, David, what do you say, uh, is it because of you've got a system that should be changed now or you got any any other interpretation? Joseph just mentioned the, this whole system. Maybe it hasn't evolved as it should with the time or is it um, you know outdated that has led to all these problems? Or you just think it's just because of, um, you know, the two parties, they don't, you know, get along and... Uh... Well, uh, it's a complicated question. I mean, as Joseph mentioned or alluded to or, or just mentioned in passing, you know, the, the rise of the United States and the rise of, uh, of it as a political power and then as a social, sociocultural power and so forth has to do with the confluence of various factors that are kind of an historical coming together of certain kinds of accidents and advantages that the United States ended up with as a as a country. Now, in the process, uh, as Joseph laid out, you know, in the process of, of the growth of, of this international superpower that we have now, there were many, many problems, inequalities, inequities, examples of overlooking serious problems, underplaying others, 
exploiting certain peoples and so forth that are just historical facts now and we can't go back and change all that now nor can we suddenly flip a switch and correct all these you don't have to go back you can just do it now right well but it's all these problems have long 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 histories and just the issue of the economic inequality that's tied up to slavery the african slave trade and uh immigration policies Yes, we, we we need to start solving them now, but these are these are problems that can't be solved easily because they involve deeply ingrained structures inequities. So, I think part of the problem now is that the U.S. all the some of the strong points of the U.S. have become so so distorted, exaggerated, and exploited by class and upper class of rulers who have basically benefited at every step of the way on the backs of, of the average people and have on the furthermore have set up a system of a propaganda kind of system that lies to people or that misleads people to keep convincing them that all they need to do is work hard and the american work ethic will solve everything and it's the best country on earth so quit complaining and so forth uh, you know what's happening is this has all reached a crisis point and nobody is believing that anymore you're saying to, yeah the, the u.s system they, is actually held hostage or by those um you know, upper class, you mentioned. Well, let's put it this way. Uh, if you look at actual U.S. policy, and that includes uh, things like Supreme Court decisions and laws and policies that are executed through Congress over the last 20 or 30 years since the 60s, as, as Joseph said, that many of the attitudes of the public or the, the things that get popular support among the public have been ignored or absolutely contravened by the powers that be. So, for example, let's just say gun control. Most people are in favor of gun control, yet we don't get gun control. Look at the recent Supreme Court ruling on abortion. Most people favor the right to have a woman have an abortion, and yet now you know, we lost it. Most people want single-payer health care, yet we don't get it. Most people wanted to cut down on nuclear weapons. We don't get it. So increasingly, we see policies that the public wants, that scores very high in public opinion, mm -hmm. and yet the government is not producing policies that are in, in accord with public opinion. And that's a long story, and a lot of it has to do with the system that's been set up with the moneyed interests who are able to control the system and get what they want and not what's good for people. That's, that's the best way I would sum up this problem that you're trying to mm. you know, hold on. Now, have you thought about it as a, you know, some kind of a burst effect of the system? Or do you think it's mm. more uh, human errors? That's a good word, burst uh, effect. Xianghong, your take here? Because I just read an article about the inequality why is uh, the U.S. more unequal than European countries? And uh, this is a study conducted by World Inequality Lab, and they're finding from 38 European countries compared with U.S. is that uh, pre-distribution is found to play a much larger role in explaining the relative lower inequality compared to the U.S rather than redistribution. So when you say burst effect, I thought of this. So pre-distribution is more unequal in the U.S. I wonder if it's because it's a country of immigrants from all different countries and the higher income groups actually have more power to exploit immigrants from other places. That's caused the pre-distribution inequality. And uh, Joseph, I wonder what you think here. Would you call it a birth defect, uh, as Xiang Hong agreed? 
or do you think it's you know more because of uh, some human errors? Well, you know what I was thinking about um, as you were talking, and 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 uh, so in, in a sense, I think the, the term birth defect is a very powerful and provocative and, mm. and, and certainly pejorative description. And, and I'm right. so uh, naturally, I'm a little radical in my thinking. I find it quite lovely as a, as a description, but I, I, I would, the, the, the rational side of me says, well, we should be a little careful. On the one hand, you know, I think David was mentioning uh, the, the system unable to deliver policies that people want. So for example, we do currently have a retrograde constitutional originalism that uh, dominates the US Supreme Court. And um, it's doing whatever it can this, uh, to not only prevent sort of reforms, but we, we, due to the political polarization that we have now, it's, it's virtually impossible for us to reform the Constitution. It's become this sacrosanct document that's stuck in the 1700s. Um, and and of course the, we have the U.S. will go down this, this path? Well, we we have a political system that was created in the 1700s, and, mm. and it was designed to empower certain types of privileged groups that were scattered around the 13 original colonies, and, and none of them wanted to be dominated by a strong center. And, uh, you know, what we can see is today, this creates all sorts of openings for old elites, but also new elites to exploit the system, mm. uh, but also vulnerabilities in so much as the larger system is unable to deal with crises that affect everyone, like climate change, like the pandemic, like uh, creating uh, an effective national healthcare system. So, you know, this is where the U.S. has a system that I think might have been suitable in some respects for a certain type of bourgeois revolution in the 18th century, but uh, is out of step with uh, real progress, or the sort of real progress that we need today to, to survive, uh, let alone uh, not go backwards. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. You're listening to The Chat Lounge, and we are talking about whether the United States is becoming a developing country. David, turning to you, Joseph just mentioned that it's, it's kind of there since the 1700s. So does it mean the government or the system will never change and, and the U.S. will actually continue down this road and there is no way back? Uh, well, to think that it could never change is a kind of pessimistic prognostication that I would I but don't how? want to go down. Yeah, I don't I, I don't think you, we can say it can't be changed. And, uh, you know, my Joseph just said that the U.S. is just too polarized and it's impossible to change the Constitution or, or basically the no, system. I don't think it's, no, it's not impossible. It's mm -hmm. not impossible, but it's very hard. And it, and it also <laughs> lots and lots of grassroots activity because there are a lot of pressures on top that don't want it don't want it to change. I mean, it's, it's actually true, maybe birth defect is a kind of a word you can use, but it was certainly a system that uh, had a flaw from the very beginning, which mm. was, says, although we say oh, that all men are created equal, but the Constitution and founders, no one ever set out with actually believing that that was true. It was, just, it was set up to entrench power to keep those that, that were rightly in power, which in the case of the founding fathers was, was basically white bourgeois. So... So the problem is, th is that the system was set up with that, if not explicitly, implicitly in mind. So, But change has happened. We have seen change uh, in terms of, uh, of racial discrimination, in terms of gender equality, in, in you know, certain other areas such as, uh, you know, let's say LGBT issues is getting better. So, I mean, you can make progress 
and you, society can move forward if we get enough people mobilized and aware. But as we see from what happened in the recent election with Trump, things can go backwards. I mean, look at Nazi Germany. Things were one of the most highest civilizations on Earth. And uh, look what happened uh, pre-World War II and World War II. I mean, things can go backwards. And so I'm not optimistic to, to think that this can be solved with just some kind of enlightened uh, uh, authority figure. Mm. But I, I, think, I think your invocation there of Nazi Germany is is important because, and, and I think this is the question that she was uh, asking you, can the system reform itself as the system presently exists? And mm. theoretically, you know, a lot of pundits, a lot of analysts, a lot of scholars fear that what we're going to see emerging in the U.S. is a right-wing movement and and that one that we've already gotten a little bit of a taste of one with with trump and that we're already seeing this movement in the supreme court and that this this tension and and this likelihood still exists you know there were people worried about the possibility of a military coup and all of that sounds fantastical but those pressures uh, exist and not just in the united states we see this as a, as a growing problem in europe and not just central and eastern europe but uh, but also western europe we have a new right-wing government in italy uh, we have this sort of this perpetual threat in other parts of Western Europe as well. So, uh, and you know, I think this is the thing that we've heard from, admittedly, some radical philosophers like uh, Slavoj Zizek, that the crises that we see mounting in the West will probably be answered by right-wing uh, fascistic turns. And, and whether or not that happens, it, it is a growing threat. Yeah, it's not just about uh, okay. the power in the wrong hands. It's about uh, what led it to People are, people are deeply frustrated by the declines. People in the United States are workers, poor people, women. Everyone is deeply frustrated. And it's reaching, I think, a, a critical point. And we saw almost a complete social collapse. I was there in the United States during the worst days of COVID. It was it was incredible seeing how far that, that country fell. And then we this thoroughly reactionary response that culminates with the attack on the Capitol. I think these are indicators of the worst possibilities that aren't yet here and that might be prevented and that we should work hard to prevent. And yet it's a growing threat. And Xianghong, you were saying? Uh, since we use the word birth defect, I was thinking optimistically the original purpose of income inequality may be to create more incentive for people to reach a, a higher level. So maybe somehow in the history, it actually created more innovation in technology in the US, attracted a, a more high skilled workers to work in the US, but now maybe they are going to extreme. I'm just saying the birth defect may be uh, two sides of the coin. It probably did some good, they raised the efficiency uh, because uh, in economics we talk about uh, the trade-off between efficiency and uh, equality in social welfare Maybe that's not a Yoon, yeah i'd like to just add or you know sure. enhance something that joe mentioned i do think that we do see that this is a worldwide problem the issues we see in the united states and the right-wing reaction is not just a problem it's a worldwide problem you see it in brazil you see it in hungary you, you quite frankly see it in Russia too. Maybe the, the answer to your question is, can it change? I think maybe the answer to your question is that the people of the world, especially these countries that are, have gone down with this disease, need to see themselves as being united, a united front 
that have this, they're facing the same problems of globalization because it's a worldwide problem and the class issues we're talking about extend over country boundaries, national boundaries. So I think the answer is yes. I mean, I'm more optimistic if I think that everyone can unite, not just in the United States, but see themselves as a world movement and work together in conjunction. You know, look what's happening in, in Iran right now. You know, it's on the verge of another kind of revolution. And so, yeah, I, I still remain optimistic, but I think it's going to take a worldwide effort. And it's going to take a lot of hard work. Uh, when you say it's a worldwide uh, problem, I'm thinking about the the Nordic countries. They're staying on, you know, top of the list for you know, like forever. You know, what can we yeah. learn from them? Because they found a more happy medium between a pure capitalistic system and one that has more socialist aspects. The reason the happiness ratio for the Nordic for the uh, Scandinavian countries is so high. Is because they've actually raised standard of living and peaceful uh, upper mobility and uh, you know social cohesion, because they've they've found a mix of more socialist sorts of social uh, safety networks and and welfare systems and uh, free market capitalism to create uh, wealth. They've at least experimented and found something that's more stable and more conducive to human well-being than other countries like the United States. But I, by worldwide, I don't mean it's a, it's a feature of every country. Mm. I just mean that it's not a feature of only one, that it's a, a general phenomenon, sure. probably having to do with globalization and other issues that, that we've read many books about. Seems they don't need any, you know, uh, disparities or income inequalities to stimulate their, you know, development. The stimulation is pain. Yeah. <laughs> That's but the stimulus. But, um, you know, the, the Nordic countries actually serve some good examples for other countries to follow. Do you think it's really actually, to some extent, a problem of the size of the population? Because those countries, they, they can easily reach a level where, like, everyone is, has got this uh, well-being or this well-off um, living yeah, standards. I agree. I totally agree. I think it's hard to compare a small country with a big country because you can compare one Nordic country to one province in China or in the U.S. Well, you know, it's not just that, but, you know, Denmark, the entire country of Denmark has a population uh, that's only a fraction of the size of uh, Shanghai's. Yeah. But, you know, I think, again, you have to look at, you know, why is it that the Nordic countries evolved this way? Mm. And uh, there are quite a, a number of uh, really good historical studies that demonstrate this. One is that culturally they they were predisposed even, even prior to the modern era of uh, working together under scarcity to survive. Uh, and then they became more Lutheran than the Germans, where, you know, where Lutheranism emerges, which promoted uh, gender equality and other forms of, of social equality. Uh, this was in the 1600s and so forth and so on. And then in the 1800s with the revolutions of 1848, which, you know, uh, is where, uh, you know, Marx is writing the Communist Manifesto in early 1848 and the revolutions are coming and then they all fail. Well, the one place that they didn't completely fail was in the Nordic countries. This is because the, the capitalists were too weak to dominate and the working class was too weak to dominate. Mm. And so they struck a truce. And uh, this is this is the emergence of sort of the social welfare system that we see there now. However, two points, right? The first is, if you look carefully at Sweden, if you look at um, uh, Denmark, you will see um, this pervasive, entrenched fascism that persists and that Indeed. Uh, periodically raises its head and is very violent and, and is very much upset with uh, uh, 
any sort of uh, immigration, anything that that uh, violates the purity of what they think is their white culture or society. And secondly, because of the the war in Ukraine, these these countries that were previously kind of keeping themselves out of some of the worst aspects of of uh, American hegemony in Europe, we now see them rushing. Uh, to militarize and to join uh, NATO. And so, you know, it will be very interesting uh, uh, to see how these developments um, intersect and move forward in the coming years and whether or not we're going to see increasing uh, social and political problems in the Nordic countries that mirror what we see in some of the other Western countries. Mm, they got their own business to take care of or should stay vigilant um, or otherwise um, there's there's some um, consequence. We uh, we expanding your... Expanding your expenditures on military uh, means that you have less to spend on social welfare. Becoming more nationalistic uh, in order to promote uh, militarization, um, and, you know, uh, brings up some of the worst aspects of, of ethnocentric nationalism. So, you know, all of these things have cause and effect. Uh, all of them have consequences, and and the path right now is dark. Mm, indeed, watch out for that. Otherwise, they may you know slide on this um, ranking. And uh, last question, I want to posed to all of you. It's about the implications of the U.S. story for actually for China, despite these two countries have different uh, systems. Um, maybe, Joseph, we start with you. Well, you know, China has never suffered, uh, at least in the, in the modern era, of the, the sort of hubris that we were talking about earlier with the United States. It's never, it's never thought that it's reached the end of history. Uh, we know that there are, you know, there, instead we have this, this very different obsession in Beijing. Uh, we have uh, uh, quite a number of uh, development goals uh, made in China 2025. We just reached the, the Shaokong uh, Society goal in, in 2020, 2021. We know uh, there are new goals associated with uh, 2035, uh, the second 100 uh, development goal in 2049 or 2050. So, you know, on the one hand, it's good to have goals to always be thinking about how to improve, how to reform and advance, and likewise, how to avoid the pitfalls of other, which is, you know, why we're having this conversation in part. Uh, and this is, you know, again, a consistent feature in Chinese political thought. So, and so much so that I have no doubt that uh, should this system persist, then even when the second 100 is reached in 2049 or 50, when we're expected to be a fully developed modern socialist country, um, we won't be talking about being a fully developed country in some final sense, but how to keep developing, uh, especially faced with new challenges like pandemics and climate change. Uh, anyway, you know, it's always a long way to Datong or what mm. Confucius called the Great Harmony. And it's a long way to communism, uh, likely much longer than any of our lives, uh, as Deng Xiaoping uh, liked to point out. And the risk of moving backwards as the U.S. exemplifies now and as China exemplified in the past is always lurking. Uh, you can't rest on your laurels. You have to keep moving forward. However, there's there's one point that I would like to throw as just a little Molotov cocktail here at the end of the, at the conversation. Mm -hmm. That is maybe one lesson that China might learn is not to be obsessed with global rankings, both good and bad. We see this as, as something that they fixate on as well in Beijing. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe we should think about... Uh, you know, what are the best ways to survey the Chinese people and measure their quality of life in honest ways and not worry so much about uh, the, the paths that other people are taking, but just, you know, how we can improve things here. And David? Yeah, well, I, I'll be short because we've, we've talked about sure. a lot of these things already. Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the 12 core socialist values is Minju, democracy. And some foreigners look at this and say, democracy? Why, is, why should this be one of the... 12 core socialist values 
uh, and because people don't associate China with a democratic system. And uh, of course, I won't get into the Chinese uh, formulation of this whole process democracy issue, but the point is that most people polled throughout the world, and including the United States, were under Bernie Sanders, the word socialism suddenly became not a dirty word for the younger people who supported him. That actually people, the people who are being ruled don't really care about whether you call it democracy or whether it involves one person, one vote. They don't care about the system very much. What they care is about the results. Does it create human wealth, human flourishing, and happiness and stability and so forth? And they will they will move to the system that, that seems to work best for them and seems to make them you know more fulfilled as a human being. And so I, I sort of think that's the way to look at it moving forward. It's not a matter of failure of democracy, a failure of this system or that system, or how, how much capitalism or how much economic system come into play. It, it's do the results raise the level of human flourishing. I think that's probably the landmark that we should look at and not at some not at some arbitrary kind of system that we've deemed as the appropriate one. We just have to wait and see. The more experimentation, the better, I say. And uh, Xianghong, what, what can China learn from uh, the U.S. story? I like uh, the word of experimentation David just mentioned because uh, as economists, I focus on behavior and uh, experimental economics. So I definitely would uh, like uh, policies to focus on serving people from all walks of life, including women. I do see improvement opportunities for gender equality. Talking about experimentation, I would like more chances to see that government policies actually listen to people and use the experimentation to test effectiveness and welfare implications for people's different levels and then keep improving without thinking too much about other countries' ranking. But uh, we do think it's uh, good to learn. I think uh, we need to learn modestly, no matter where we are ranked. Even we made big progress, we should uh, still not listen too much. Oh, because U.S. is lower, we don't need to work uh, harder anymore. I think we can always make a progress ourselves. Very typical Chinese thinking. Thank you for that. And with that, we wrap up today's chat. Many thanks to Wang Xianghong, Professor and Director of Economic Behavior Laboratory at Renmin University of China, Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations of East China Normal University, and David Moser, Associate Professor of Beijing Capital Normal University, for your time and insightful views. Please feel free to leave a review for us, either on the topic or on the show, and subscribe to the chat lounge wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tuyun. Thank you for being with us. See you next time. Sideline Story brings you all things sports related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world.